Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here. I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Dr. Gray Sutanto, professor of systematic theology. Hey, Gray. Good to be here. And Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament. Hey, Tommy. Hi, good to, good to see you in 2023. Good to see you in 2023, that's right. And we have a special guest today. We're, we're in, a, in a sense, getting the band back together, oh, as right. it were. <laughs> <laughs> by, uh, you can hear his laugh, and if you know him, you know him already by the laugh. Um, we have Dr. Chad Van Dixorn joining us this evening to talk about Westminster Assembly, amongst other things. Welcome, Chad. Well, welcome. I mean, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Uh, he's teaching a class this week, and if you're in the class, you're getting to enjoy all of this already. Uh, but we're going to talk about it a little bit in sort of more laid back, casual format of the uh, of the podcast. And you know, I'm, I'm going to hand it over to Tommy to get the conversation started. But as many of you know, if you've been in the RTS Washington, um, you know cloud uh, for the last few years. You know that uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn taught here for many years, uh, was a colleague and um, an active part of this faculty before heading up. What year did you go up? I was trying to think about this on the way over. So, so 2018. 2018, moved up to Westminster, his alma mater. You know, apologetically, he said, Scott, I've got to go. <laughs> the mother school is calling. And um, and we sent him on happily, but miss him. And it's great to have you back. He's been teaching semi-regularly for us since then, when we can get him down here to teach. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, been, it's delightful. Really enjoying the students again. Great, great. So good to have you with us. Uh, let me pass it over to Tommy Keene to get us going in this conversation. You're teaching theology of the Westminster Standards. Uh, both Westminster and RTS were both confessional institutions. One of the things that I often get asked as academic dean, you know, is what is a confession? What does it mean that you're confessional? And mm. the, what what does it mean to be confessional? And of course, our institutions subscribe to the Westminster Confession in particular. So maybe give us an introduction just to the Westminster Standards for those who might not know what that is, yeah, yeah. what it means to confess a confession and, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of the role of, of the standards in, in your life, in the life of uh, our institutions, and, of course, the church. Right. So I think that's five things. <laughs> yeah, if I have, those if five I have things. Right, <laughs> we'll, then, we'll, then we'll close it down. After <laughs> and, that. and if you could keep it to three minutes. <laughs> so so um, let me add a sixth. So a, a confession is, is like a big creed. It's a statement of doctrine that covers important topics. And uh, most, most confessions are... Are historical. They've got some. Mm-hmm. They've got some years behind them, some vintage, and that mm-hmm. means that more people are using them, uh, even if we sometimes need to uh, take a little bit of extra work, and in, in trying to uh, understand what they're about, and and why they're important. Uh, I'm here to uh, talk about the Westminster Standards, because uh, this institution, RTS, is committed to. Uh, to the Reformed faith, not in the abstract, but but as a as a classic biblical um, uh, expression of of Protestantism, and those expressions have been uh, in, in, encapsulated uh, in in confessions. 
So the beginning of the 1500s, there were no Protestant confessions. Hmm. Um, uh, by the end of the con- by the end of the century, uh, there's there's well over a hundred catechisms and confessions, and uh, the English were a little slower to finish their Reformation from the Reform perspective, and they they kind of wound things down in the 1640s, and so. The confession that uh, this seminary, RTS, uh, uses is written in 1646, and then some scriptural um, proofs were added in, in 1647, kind of completing the package. 33 chapters covering a range of doctrines, scripture, God, what did God do, creates, he upholds the world, um, uh, and it kind of just kind of works out through God's providence in the whole plan of redemption. So that's a confession. That's what we hold to, and I think holding to it is the key thing. It's not just enough to have a confession; you got to mm-hmm. you got to hold it. Mm-hmm. To have and to hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a good phrase, even now, mm-hmm. outside of marriage. So there's a couple things. I don't want to ramble too long. Well, no, I like that definition, especially the, I like the simplicity of it. That it's uh, a confession is a big creed that has some vintage to it. And uh, I mean, my immediate question follow up was, well, what makes a question? What makes a confession stick? Like what makes it, mm. you know, it, for it to have vintage, it's got to stick around for a while, yeah, right? Yeah. It's got to be useful to the church for a, a lengthy amount of time. What, why did that happen to the Westminster Standards? Why does it stick for yeah. us even into the present age? And what, yeah, maybe reflect yeah. on that a little bit. I mean, I, I think for a confession to have sticking power, and not to sound too sort of grunch, uh, grouchy or negative, but for, for a confession to have sticking power, it, it has to have um, uh, the, the weight of the church behind it. And very practically, that means that uh, the, those, who, those who are teachers or leaders in the church need to be committed to using um, and confessing the truths in that document. And they are not allowed to have substantive differences with that confession. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 you ought not to be an Arminian mm-hmm. uh, and say that you subscribe or confess uh, the, the system of doctrine that's in the Westminster Standards, which is not Arminian. Uh, and if someone is in a Presbyterian church and this is their confession, they need to be held to that. You, and that's not, by the way, restrictive. Yeah. We want to say anyone who reads this and says, yes, this is what I think the Bible believes, they're set up to be Presbyterians or Presbyterian leaders. Um, people who think, oh, my goodness, I don't believe half of that. Well, they ought to look somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are churches where they can thrive and minister uh, while they believe the contrary. With, go back a little bit. To Westminster, so you talked about the fact you got hundreds by the end of the 16th century, right? So the end of the 1500s, you've got hundreds. You got yeah. Dort and others are all coming out. The Continental uh, Confessions. What's the what's the occasion? Why don't they? Yeah. Why, why, don't, why don't the English say these are good enough? Yeah. You know, these these were ecumenical. Some of them they're good enough. We mm-hmm. what, what's the occasion for the Westminster Assembly? Yeah, so the Church of England was in turmoil. Uh, it, it, although it was officially settled in the time of Elizabeth, first worship, then government, and eventually even uh, doctrine gets discussed by the end of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the Church of England, 
uh, James kind of takes an Arminian turn at the end of his life. His son Charles uh, really uh, elevates Arminian bishops, mm -hmm. um, and uh, a number of them become increasingly. Um, uh, how do I how do I say this nicely? No, no, I won't say it nicely. Um, uh, they they they, <laughs> they become <laughs> uh, they become. Uh, real persecutors of anyone who doesn't toe the line huh. and and cross every T, dot every I, of what it means to be uh, someone who's a minister in the Church of England. So you have to adhere to the liturgy entirely and completely. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to follow the uh, the church hierarchy, even when it's calling people to do things that are not uh, biblical. Um, and uh, th those those tensions are one of three major factors leading England into a civil war. Um, and when that war comes in the 1640s, the English parliament says, look, part of our problem here, it's not just monetary, it's not, it's not just economics, it's not just politics. We have also have a long running religious problem here. We're gonna call mm -hmm. a bunch of theologians together to give us advice about how the church could be changed. Mm. That's the Westminster Assembly. Meets in Westminster Abbey uh, for about 10 years, does most of its productive work in five years. Um, and that includes uh, stuff on stuff. That includes, <laughs> that, 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 that includes statements on doctrine. So, so you know, the, the Reformed faith is, is a, is a three-legged stool. Mm. Um, you've got the doctrinal leg, but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't serve well without the other two legs, which is worship, and government, each of them informs and supports the other. So it's a three-legged stool, confession and catechisms. That's what I'm talking about, the doctrinal part uh, is the focus this week. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. So how does that set the agenda then for what we actually find in the content of Westminster? So you got the, the, the I mean, uh, what I mean, but you have this, you have this historical background yeah. where you're dealing with uh, this call to conform to the, to the Church of England it's leading to civil war, out of it comes this document. Yeah. Do you find that, can you kind of, can you sense that history? Can you sense those events behind yeah. the content that you find there? Does it kind of help them decide what issues they're gonna address or are they following some other kind? Is there a handbook out there on how to do confessions and they're just kind of <laughs> checking off the box? So that's a, that's a yes and a no. There's one sense in which you, you read the larger catechism or you read the confession, you just think, what a remarkably well-organized, mm -hmm. nicely put, uh, clearly thought out biblical statement of the Christian faith. Comprehensive. Yeah, it, is just, it just kind of covers so many of the high points. There's just no trace of conflict. But once you know about the war, you can begin to understand things. Because one of the things, that, you begin to see, see new things perhaps. Um, so to choose one example, when the Civil War breaks out, censorship, which is common in, in uh, early modern states, censorship breaks down as the war breaks out. And that means that all kinds of views which might not otherwise have been expressed are now available in pamphlets, in sermons, on the streets. You have anti-Trinitarianism. You have... Uh, new views about about the law and holiness. Uh, you have new views about about leadership and ministry. Um, you have a you, you have you have Baptists mm -hmm. 
who are able to articulate their convictions in a way that previously they, they couldn't. So that means that the Westminster Confession, when it's written, is now not just addressing kind of historic, traditional errors in the church and historic traditional truths. Um, it's not just reflecting on, 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 error, on errors from the early church or the problems with Catholicism. It's now dealing with a bunch of other issues, many of them which are fairly typical of evangelical churches today. Mm. A, a lack of understanding of what biblical authority means. Uh, churches that deny that there is such a thing and churches which abuse it, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. The confession is trying to uh, deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it you know, addresses the question of Christian liberty, it's not just constraints on Christian liberty um, uh, Im imposed by aggressive bishops or Roman Catholics. They're also thinking about abuses of liberty on the, on the part of in sort of the, the, the wild side of Protestantism. Mm. The, the hermeneutic side of me kind of goes a little into hyperdrive, you know, as you're talking about that, because on the one hand, a confession is, is, is responsive, right? It, it, it is oriented towards an occasion, a moment. It's trying to answer questions that people on the ground are asking and to give direction in that respect. And so it's super tied to its historical moment. And yet its purpose and design is to be kind of, you know, it's, it's to look forward past itself. It's to be a community. It's to be uniting. Mm -hmm. It's to be forward looking and useful into the, into the ages. Like what, what's the balance there, you know, on the ground as it were, since you've poured through, you know, minutes and, and things of that nature, how, how do, how do the, you know, authors of the confession wrestle with to what extent is this a question for us now and to what extent do we want it to project out into the, into the you know, eternity future, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So, so when they're writing the Westminster Confession, um, some people just think, uh, you know, this is what the church needs now. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, maybe the church needs more than this, but this is 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 what we think the church can accept and use now. Um, so I think for for some, this is uh, this is just a really useful expression. And maybe they would say more if the whole church had been more reformed already. Maybe they maybe they would have said more. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for for others, you know, they're they're thinking, this is a statement that's going to be used by posterity. Mm -hmm. uh, so it doesn't, you know, some of the the Augsburg Confession names names right, of right. people who are problematic. The Westminster Confession of Faith is is timeless. Is more it appears more timeless because they don't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, heretics don't don't get their their own errors named in the confession. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and, and so it has that has some longevity there. I'm thinking of the you know as a kind of test case that the language of in the space of six days, for example, just as one mm. example, which seems you know on, seems to be trying to be a big umbrella rather than a little umbrella. Any thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, so, so I've been 
I've become aware of uh, views on, on creation that uh, that were were published in the 1650s in France. Mm-hmm. These are kind of old Earth views, and anything that's published is first circulated in any number of ways before then. So it's 1650s, but we can be sure when that kind of thing is in the air and uh, every decent theologian does his continental tour at some point <laughs> and visits all kinds of Reformed churches, um, that the, the Westminster divines are aware of the fact that, that not only do we have Augustine's right. view of creation, which is that it's all done in a moment, we have other people beginning to make arguments for the earth and the world being very old. Now, it's, it's striking that a number of divines, when they write on creation, will specify that these are 24-hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there are people who think it's important to specify a precise duration. And that's in, isn't that in some previous confessions, too? I hear like... Maybe Irish confessions or something. There's some where that's that 24-hour day precision is used. Yeah, good, good, good question. Um, and I would I would look at uh, James Dennison's uh-huh. collection okay. of creeds and confessions to kind of survey that. Um, but but what's also interesting is that the assembly, although it has members who prefer to be that precise. They don't, they don't actually mm-hmm. say 24-hour days. Mm-hmm. When they debate the Sabbath, there's a debate in the minutes of the assembly. Do we specify it's a 24-hour day? Mm-hmm. Um, they decide not to. So they're, they're quite capable in their individual writings, in their debates, of discussing the length of days. Mm-hmm. They choose not to. Yeah, so I think people really neglect the fact that the, the confession of faith is actually also a accommodation document. It's actually telling us what are the, the, the diversity of doctrines that are allowable within the Reformed churches, the Protestant churches here. So what would you say are some of the main issues that the Westminster Assembly debated and said, this is not something we should disagree about, this is not something we should be specific about in the Confession of Faith? Yeah. So, so there, there's very few things that they did not debate. They mm-hmm. debate basically everything, but following those debates, <laughs> um, we see a lot less debate on, say, the doctrine of God mm-hmm. than on justification. Mm. Um, there's more debate about how to understand the atonement than there is about justification. Mm. Um, so you, th- there's there's questions that are kind of left unanswered, or at least that are still ongoing mm-hmm. in the 1640s. The Westminster Assembly helps to clarify some of those. And, and in fact, um, in the English-speaking world, the Westminster Standards provide a major milestone in terms of clarifying vocabulary and concepts. Mm-hmm. So justification after the Westminster Assembly, all, all, the, the number of people who will say it just refers to forgiveness only. Mm. It's going to be really tiny. Mm. There are Reformed people who argue that before the Westminster Assembly. Th- that number becomes minuscule afterwards. Clearly, justification is an umbrella term for two distinct benefits, forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's a no-brainer following in the generations following the assembly in a way that it's not prior. So it'd be an example of something that really gets clarified. And there's not, there's not really a lot of room for 
for for disagreement about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we think about in light of what's what's allowable and what's not? How do you consider? And then after this, I want to come around to your specific expertise in Westminster because this is an interesting story that needs to be told. But what do we do then with the fact that, that you have like a handful of congregationalists yeah. at Westminster? Does that say something about the polity in Westminster or something? That, how how ought we think about that? Yes. Yeah, so, so the Westminster Confession of Faith ends up not discussing a lot of polity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it still does speak about synods, which congregationalists support, but yeah. also says that they can hear appeals. The Congregationalists simply would not accept certain statements. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the uh, Episcopalians and the Episcopalians would also have to sort of demure from certain statements. But where the where the real disagreements come in is over the Directory for Church Government. Mm-hmm. So the Westminster Standards were intended. Uh, they were intended. I guess it was intended to be a five-legged stool. Hmm. Uh, wow. You know, the Confession, the two Catechisms the Directory for Worship, and the Directory for Church Government. And basically every Presbyterian church accepts the Confession and Catechisms and then makes up its own yeah. directions for worship and government. Because five-legged stools are hard to make. Because five-legged stools. <laughs> At some point it's Three-legged stools are easier. <laughs> At some point it becomes a bench. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, you know, I— when you were down here and and we were having events and I'd have to introduce you regularly, I, I'd use all kinds of— Hyperbole. Flowery analogies. You say one man's hyperbole is another man's just saying it the way it is. (laughs) You have a special relationship to Westminster and will, for all posterity, have that relationship. Because one of the things about Westminster for the centuries since it was constructed, (laughs) since it was put together. Oh, the Abbey. Well, no, the Assembly. I'm thinking about the Assembly specifically. Is that we did not... Uh, it was often noted we didn't have access to the full uh, record of the conversations and the minutes behind the assembly documents, okay, behind the, the actual confession catechisms. Um, and there was a reason for that, but you, you, you are now, your name will forever go down as a guy who's very significant and central in, in, in finding the minutes uh, in, a, in a kind of Indiana Jones finding <laughs> the lost ark. That was one of my analogies. I think another one I use, you know, if you want to, it's like it's having, totally my comfort zone being compared uh, to Indiana Jones. Uh, thank, thank you. Yeah. Oh, I've got a better one got now. got the jacket for it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like Moses with the law. I mean, here, is that, I'm, I'm just going to amp it up oh from here. Oh, my goodness. And um, this from a biblical thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe like Jeremiah with the law. Okay. <laughs> You didn't write them, but you found them. Um, but it is so, I mean, that's, that's a significant part of understanding the history behind the confession and its documents is the minutes. It's, can you tell us a little bit about what was the problem with the minutes and what was your role in, uh, in helping them get finally published, at least as, as fully as we can currently imagine them being published? Yeah. Well, um, Three, three things. First, Alexander Mitchell, who published a one-volume edition of the Minutes mm-hmm. in the late 19th century, was really just interested in, uh, was chiefly interested in, in doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so he only published the part of the Minutes that dealt with 
the confession and catechisms, or at least that, that's, that's what he most focused on. Right. And so uh, wh what I did was to um, transcribe and produce an edition of the full minutes of the assembly. So it's about three times bigger. I also, uh, you referenced finding things. I found a journal by John Lightfoot, uh, an additional journal, in addition to the ones that we already had, covering a part of the assembly's history where we had nothing before. Mm. And that should actually come out any day now mm. with West, with Oxford, a, a full now, a first time, a full edition of John Lightfoot's personal account of the assembly. So that'll sort of supplement the five volume mm -hmm. minutes and papers of the assembly. Third thing is that, that I think some of the, the most interesting discoveries were papers of the assembly. Yes, I found a few few pages of the minutes, but most of those just needed to be read. They were just yeah. very hard to read. Yeah. Um, so there's a good bit of paleography. Yeah, yeah, so paleography skills, I needed to develop those. Um, but, but another way of understanding the Westminster Assembly's documents is to get all the documents together. And they wrote about 140 documents. Mm -hmm. And so once you have the papers of the assembly, and you can see their explanations and comments and petitions and letters and so on, you begin to get a sense of how the gathering used certain words and phrases, uh, what doctrines uh, are invoked in, what's, in what circumstances. These papers provide a lot of extra context for the confession and catechisms. Mm. Um, and so those are those are sort of the the, the main things that I've that I've been working on. So is it some of the papers that you you, you had the thing when you're you're in the Bodleian, right? And you yeah, found, you found a right. document that wasn't yeah four hundred folio pages of Westminster Assembly wow. material. Yeah, uh, it was known that there was the, the that the uh, larger catechism the shorter catechism was there, but this is just a general principle in research where there's one thing there might be more. Go look. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went and it wasn't on the records. It wasn't in the in the uh, card catalog. There is a uh, Her Majesty's Commission for Manuscripts in the mm -hmm. late nineteenth century notes that there are papers of the Westminster Assembly in the Bodleian, but the Bodleian itself doesn't have them cataloged. Uh, and so, so where were they? So they were they were in a the way in which people often preserve manuscripts was to just bind them all together in huge books. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I called up the manuscript that contained the, the shorter catechism. And as I opened the volume, I, I realized there was all kinds of other papers there having to do with the Westminster Assembly, as well as an important Congregationalist paper uh, yeah. with Owen and Philip Nye, John Owen and Philip Nye's signatures on it and so on, sort of a, a 1650s paper that was misfiled. That's incredible. A little Amazing. confession from the 1650s mm. also that was in there. Uh, so that was a that's what we call a good day. In the <laughs> and then Westminster College was known to have a copy of the Confession. Same principle. I asked to see the volume. There are a number. There are, there are in, in total, I believe, six important uh, uh, documents. And then the House of Lords. Um, uh, I, I found out that they kept copies of everything. The House of Commons Library burned down. The House of Lords Library didn't. So I went there, and again, a treasure trove. So London, Oxford, Cambridge. And no one, now no, with like House of Lords, had no one looked there? Is it the same kind of thing? Or no, had it not occurred? Because isn't there an yeah. administrative detail there that anything that was submitted to Parliament would then be submitted to So House it's in of a card Lords? catalog at, okay. at the House of Lords, and eventually it's put online. Uh -huh. But no one who studied the Westminster Assembly had gone to the House of Lords wow. uh, to look for papers. Um, this is another good day. Another good day. So four <laughs> really good days. Finding Lightfoot, the 
papers at Westminster College in Cambridge. Lightfoot was also in Cambridge. Yeah. The, the, the Bodleian Library and then the House of Lords. Many wow. good days. There's the initial yeah. good day and then yes. all the other trips that follow. Lightfoot. But, but then there was also material in The Hague. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was material in, in Geneva, mm-hmm. uh, material in Edinburgh. Mm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, it, it was a PhD for dummies. The Lord allowed me to find enough stuff <laughs> oh, and that, a, that a goofball could write a thesis. Well, and so what do you do at that point? Do you go to the photocopy machine? I like break yeah, it down. Yeah, right. So this was before you were allowed to take pictures in libraries. Yeah. Uh, uh, iPhones hadn't been invented yet. So um, I had to order microfilm rolls to be made, yeah. which was prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Mm. Um, but and then I would transcribe everything in the roll, and then you would go. You take trips back to that library, to, you know, to look at stuff that wasn't clear in the in the photo. So lots of trips to these libraries mm. for over a period of seven years. Mm. And it was all during the writing of your PhD thesis. You said? So I spent a year on stateside mm. working on the minutes uh, using microfilms, and then three years writing the PhD, and then these are. And then two postdocs, so eight years total, right. full time. Right, fantastic. Yeah, makes yeah. looking at Bobbing's handwriting is really sound insignificant right now. <laughs> Did you do <laughs> microfilm? No, not this, at all. Yeah, that's just. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Every so, century uh, has its own messy you, the youth right these here. days. <laughs> yeah, no. I take a lot of iPhone pictures though, so. Ah yes. <laughs> so on my one of my last trips, I was able to. When it came to the Lightfoot project, I had a microfilm, but I went back mm-hmm. with a camera mm-hmm. and took pictures uh, in color rather than black and white. Yeah. It was so much it's nicer amazing. to work with. Yeah, and they're so digital, mm-hmm. so you don't have to stand in front of a machine. Right. You you can just put them up on your big yeah. screen. And yeah. It was great. You can flip them, make them, yeah. make them negative and everything. Probably would like have that. saved it a couple of years if I had <laughs> been able to do that. Yeah. Or, you might not have glasses either. I might not have this prescription. <laughs> <laughs> so this came out, you have a multi-volume edited minutes of the Westminster Confession. That's yes, available. it came out 10 years ago. Yep. And now, I guess, maybe January of this year, mm-hmm. the Lightfoot volume will finally come out. And then I'm working on, for the same publisher. That, who's that going to be with? Uh, Oxford. Oxford, okay. Yeah, and then uh, with the same publisher, a history of the Westminster Assembly. I'm kind of plodding away on at that awesome. I'm, in a, I'm in a rush to get it done because there's other things I'd like to do mm-hmm. yeah. and historians say whatever you do don't rush mm. what uh, are all the other things that you hope to get to in the future near future well at, at, at the moment um, I am uh, leading a project so there's a team of of, of editors and I'm, I'm leading that team uh, that's producing an edition of Samuel Rutherford's works for the first time. Mm. So volumes that have never been translated are being translated. Volumes that have never been transcribed uh, and mm. published are being published. Mm-hmm. So uh, Joel Beakey, John Coffey, uh, Mark Kohler, and, and and Matthew Vogan are the five main editors. Then there's other editors. And, 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 uh, and then also in addition for the first time of the works of Antony Burgess, an English mm. divine. Mm-hmm. English Presbyterians, English Reformed people have been significantly overlooked mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm uh, I'm writing just a variety of essays for this is and, and, and that's and I'd like to write a book on uh, church polity mm-hmm. um, and I've always had a hankering to 
to write a book on uh, James, uh, John Livingston Nevius, uh, mm. uh, a missionary mm. to China. And I wanna, I wanna write, um, I, I'm beginning, I, I, in the last year I've decided I, I, I'm basically committed to writing a commentary on the larger catechism. Mm. I didn't wanna do it, didn't wanna do it, and then I started mm. reading it every day and really taking my time thinking about it. I just think this is such a rich document. It is yep. sort of the full flower of the Westminster Assembly's thought. And rather than, uh, I, I'm thinking the title might be something like, uh, instead of confessing the faith, living the faith. Because mm -hmm. so much of it is, is you know, the yes, there's mm -hmm. a huge doctrinal chunk, but then there's the Ten Commandments, there's the Lord's Prayer, and those expositions. So I, I'm, I'm thinking that would be a real pleasure to write. I would be edified by it. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps someone else might be too. Absolutely. So, Confessing the Faith, because you've written a reader's guide to the Westminster Confession, which is a great, not just introduction, yep. but commentary on working through. So if, if you're not uh, comfortable or you're not familiar with confession, yeah. particularly the Westminster Confession, it's a great way to work through it. Um, yeah, it's devotional. You, you'll you enjoy it. You'll benefit from it. Yep. So you've done the, the reader's guide. You've done God's Ambassadors, which is kind of looking at a pastoral theology of the assembly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, that's right. And then just last year you had the uh, book on marriage, the gospel. Yes, a little out of my uh, Yeah, I was going to say this is out of my lane. This isn't this isn't Westminster's view so, on no. <laughs> a healthy marriage. No, it you know, but I mean, ironically, uh, one of the key we've learned something about the dynamic of marriage from one of the patriarchs of the Westminster assembly actually. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, not don't don't commend everything in his book, but but uh, there's a guy named William Gooch who just has some has a lovely key insight that is an organizing principle for our book. But yeah, we were asked to do a book on marriage, not sure why, totally get why we were not asked to do a book on parenting. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, I, I said- So what's the, key, what's the key, well, okay. What, no, what did no, you no, say no, to no, no. So, so, so the, yeah, ha happy to say, um, he, he spends a long time, this guy's name is, is William Gooch, in his book, Domestical Duties. Uh -huh. Spends a lot of time thinking about the submit yourself one to another verse mm -hmm. prior to the marriage, parenting, and uh, master-servant relationships at the end of Ephesians 5, beginning of Ephesians 6. And, and he, he, he thinks that there's a real reason, there has to be a significant reason why this prefaces what follows. Mm -hmm. um, and Looking at the parenting dynamic, he notes how children are called to honor their parents, and then parents are immediately told not to exasperate their children. Mm -hmm. In other words, the parents have to make, have to look at the job of the child, not just to say, that's what you're to do, but they have to ask themselves, how do we make that easier? Mm -hmm. And he begins to say, wait a minute, this works for everything. Mm -hmm. This works for the master-servant relationship. Mm -hmm. I bet this is going on in marriage too. And so he says that the, the, the point of the husband getting to overhear um, the, 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 the command to the wife that she's to you know, honor his headship, respect, to him, respect uh, and, and submit to him, it's, it's not so he can go around telling her to do that. Mm. It's so he can ask himself, well, if that's what she's called to do, and I am who I am, mm -hmm. how can I sweeten that task? Mm -hmm. And he calls husbands to say, look, um, don't ask her to do things um, that are going to be a, a burden to her. Mm. And then he turns around to the wife and says, um, "Be willing to do whatever he asks." Mm. He tells the guy, "Don't, don't, don't ask what she doesn't like to do." Yeah. And then he says, "Gives her the flip side." And then, and then just, just to kind of round that up, 
round that off. If if he's to love her, mm-hmm. um, it's not his job to say, "Hey, you're supposed to love me," mm-hmm. or her job. Did I get that right? I'm not sure I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Um, it's not her job to say, "Hey, you're supposed to love me better." Mm-hmm. It's her job to say, "Well, if he's to love me, how can I how can I make that task as easy as possible? Yeah. How can I, how can I be as lovable as possible?" Mm-hmm. And so, so he just keeps chasing down these these duties as he thinks through what the Bible has to say about That's marriage. Great. And and yeah. I think, okay, now I really will wind down. First Corinthians seven does a lot of this when yeah. it talks I, about yeah. sexuality great. in the body mm-hmm. and in in marriage. The, the way in which we're to think about one another. Mm-hmm. Um, Googe runs with that. And I just thought, we just thought, that's wonderful. And we've been attempting to implement that uh, and eventually wrote about it. That's excellent. Yeah, that's great. It's it's funny, you miss some of that dynamic in the Pauline corpus and First Pe- First Peter 2 starts into that household code as well. And you get so focused on the uh, especially in our current climate on the language of submission that you, that you miss the mutuality involved yeah um, you know husbands in the same way yeah love with your, love yes. your wife yes 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 in the same way as what in the same way as they're submitting to you yes. you love them yeah in this kind of yeah so we work with the petrine yeah. passage as well i mean that, that that mutuality doesn't swallow up our distinctive calls mm-hmm. yeah but it definitely informs it and shapes yeah. it yeah yeah well, it's a, yeah, to, to use a modern phrase, lean into it. Like, lean yeah. into this yeah. thing you've been called to and your wife's been called to yeah. vis-a-vis you. Yeah. Like, kind of own this and and cultivate it, nurture it. Don't yeah. don't eschew it. Now, now, you gave three more questions at the beginning. I did. I was about to uh, – you're, you're anticipating exactly where I was going to okay. shift. Yeah. I, I was going to – I was going to shift. Yeah. So I had it all planned out. Oh, well, very good then. Yeah, yeah. I had all planned out. I was going to say you're also, in addition to being a historian and a scholar and a theologian, you're also a churchman. And then I was going to say we're actually involved at uh, RTS in our own kind of uh, QEP, which we mentioned in our previous episode. We're trying to incorporate the Westminster Standards in particular into the pastoral aspect of ministry. Yeah. Um, we do a good job of that theologically, but... The usefulness of the standards for pastoral ministry in the day in and t- to day out, and I can think mm-hmm, of no better mm-hmm. person to reflect on that mm-hmm. than than yourself. How, how have you found the confessions uh, useful, not only as just a theologian, but as a churchman? Mm. So every morning, uh, in addition to my Bible reading, um, I read a, a part of the Westminster Standards. Mm. Um, I, I find these little summaries of what God's Word teaches um, precious in the old sense, special, uh, valuable. They, they often help me devotionally. Um, they, they'll feature in my prayers. And, um, and as a family, I add a little bit of shorter catechism to our mm-hmm, evening yeah. family devotions. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that that's helps, helps to shape my piety and thinking, reminds me of what I have, what I'm committed to. Um, as, as, a, as a churchman, uh, I've served as a pastor, and I would teach through the Westminster Standards as something aspirational for our congregation. I, I, I think that uh, the Westminster Standards are for 
uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith in particular is, is really for the leaders of the church. I think, I think in a Reformed church, a Presbyterian church, this is what a leader ought to hold to, whether it be an elder, deacon, or, or minister. Mm -hmm. But members of the church just need to be Christians. Mm -hmm. But this is a great way of saying, look, let, let's move beyond 10 bullet points on a website mm -hmm. and really enrich your faith. You, you're, you're thankful that Jesus saves you. What's that look like? What's that mean? Mm -hmm. So you get into redemption as it's accomplished and applied as you look at it. So it's applied. You think about justification, adoption, sanctification. You think about justification to use an illustration from earlier, that's an umbrella term for two different benefits, forgiveness and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Mm -hmm. So this is how I, I would try and teach the church how to deepen their theology, always working from the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So here's a statement. Why do we believe that? Well, we believe that because we've read the Bible and we think that this is, the, this is an excellent expression of right. what the Bible teaches. Right. So that's, that informs my thinking as a churchman. And, and, and I do like the Westminster Divines themselves, distinguish between what leaders need to believe and what members need to believe. Yep. Um, but I'd be very interested to hear how you, in addition to having people come in and give courses on the Westminster Standards, how you um, uh, incorporate the Westminster Standards into your your teaching. I mean, Gray, you teach systematic theology. That, yeah. That's That's a... That's well, an easy one, perhaps. Well, let me just say, too, that, you know, the Confessing the Faith book is truly a wonderful volume. We actually required that for leadership training and also elders training, deacons training back home in Jakarta, Indonesia. Oh. So I couldn't recommend it enough. We had huge shipments of books. It took about three months. Uh, <laughs> that's to get where there. they all went. There was a complaint <laughs> that they had all disappeared. That's right. That's right. It took about three months to get all the books there. So wow. we were reading that's it all together. And also, you know, um, people were actually starting to see, hey, this is actually really accessible. Confessional mm -hmm. thinking in Jakarta, Indonesia, and as, I think Asia as a whole, it has really not, it's, it's not the majority of the churches there, to say the least. It's uh, very few people think confessionally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you said there was exactly right. It really delineates an aspiration of what it looks like to be a mature doctrinal Christian, if that makes sense. And I think before I was a confessional Presbyterian, um, just as an evangelical uh, coming out of Biola University, I was, we would, if we didn't have the confession to measure our doctrinal maturity, we would replace it with something else. It would be very subjective standards. Uh, back then when I was, you know, perhaps a cage-stage Calvinist, I would measure people on, oh, have you read... You know, at first it was like Spurgeon or something. And then it was, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. have you read? Oh, and then, you know, you discover some other author. Oh, you read Calvin. Oh, well, you know, the, but this Francis Jordan, he's deeper than Calvin. So I'm more mature than you now. So I, you, you start picking up just your own subjective preference and not something that the church has actually upheld mm -hmm. as a standard. So um, we wanted to plant a church that was confessional in Jakarta because we, we thought that this was an incredibly powerful document that, that, as a confessional church, it actually connects us to the broader Catholic church, not only in history, but also around the world. And I completely agree with you, Chad, that, that the Westminster Confession of Faith has that perennial feel, that timelessness to it mm. um, and the way it was written. And some of the even opponents that it was opposing, you know, Westminster Confession of Faith 1-6, talking about new revelation of the Spirit, that all very applicable in the context of Jakarta, where yeah. most of the churches there are Pentecostal. So mm -hmm. um, we can therefore show this is not just me not liking or disagreeing personally to these doctrines, but actually the church has dealt with these doctrines. And there's a reason why um, it's put in the confession like this. So I try to really show that in my teaching, um, show to the students, therefore, in the context like RTS, 
that the Westminster Standards is not just a pithy weight of, of, of talking about doctrine, of expressing yourself, but it's really a helpful summary of the biblical truths that we hold to. Mm. And as a professor as well now as a teacher, it, it helps me not just make stuff up, right? Um, so when the accreditors were here and we're talking about the QEP a few months ago, um, I told them, you know, why, why am I so excited about this Westminster Standards QEP as well? It's because, you know, I have to teach ST1, Scripture, Theology, Anthropology. What am I going to teach about free will? And where do I start? Uh, there's just forests have been burned uh, of books to write books um, about free will. So where, where in the world do I start? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith has a wonderful chapter on free will. It's actually very nuanced. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I tell my students, too, immediately, you reform people should get rid of the myth that we don't believe in free will. Yeah. <laughs> because our Protestant standards itself tell you that you believe in free will. It has a very clear definition. It's actually redemptive historically uh, aligned as well. So um, in terms of the, the way it's written from 9.2, especially in the 9.5. Um, but I, this just goes to show that as a professor, you get to lean in in these documents yourself, too. And you get to show that these are not only helpful to communicate the truth, but they're also something that that should be delighted in, in that sense, as a summary of biblical truth. So I, I love yeah. using it. And of course, when we go through scripture, we go through chapter one, doctrine of God, chapter two, providence, three to five, um, original sin, chapter six. So again, you don't just make stuff up. It, it helps you. This is your system of doctrine that you want to teach. Um, and of course, I... Since the QEP, I've uh, made it a prompt in the exam to write out Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 2, 2, verbatim. Um, because I think that's where they're, they're, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, but their anti-Arminian polemic really kick in. That foreknowledge is not dependent upon the mm. creature, for God never learns from the creature, and God's foreknowledge is never fallible. It's certain. It, it contains everything. So um, if... Chapter 2, 1, Doctrine of God's Unity. Chapter 2, 3, Doctrines of God Trinity, kind of in a Catholic statement. Chapter 2, 2 is the most reformed tinge of it. Mm. So I, I, I try to show the students there that this is this is a really wonderful reformed doctrine of God. And um, verbatim, you have to write it down. Yeah. Uh, so far, they've done pretty good about it. So yeah. uh, I was not discouraged to see the answers. It's a great practice. Yeah. That was a long way of answering the question. I'm sorry. No, I like I like yeah. your your opening insight too, that before you were confessionally oriented, yep. you ended up being sort of theologian or person oriented. Yes. And I think that in in basically every non confessional church, yep, it becomes the church becomes oriented around a person, mm-hmm. whether it be around the independent pastor, uh, whether Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon becomes your standard, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it becomes the Pope. Yep. Y- you know, it, it, well, I guess Catholicism is confessional in some sense, but right. it's really, it, you know, w- that's that's how we're going to gravitate. And and even within Presbyterianism, we can do that. Mm-hmm. It, we, we can begin to have certain prominent figures, as it were, become our functional confessional standard. Yes. And the problem with that is, A, they said an awful lot. Yes. Um, and if we make someone's corpus our standard, we are 
ultimately going to be limiting people's Christian liberty. Yeah. Yeah. It's no longer evergreen. Yeah, th- right. Yeah. And people change their minds. <clears throat> and, thinking, and, not... and also in a way, thinking that you're becoming broad by not being confessional, you're actually becoming quite narrow because it's not many voices. Yeah. It's, yep. one, yeah, it's right. one or two voices. Absolutely. You know, that's so important. Of the founding fathers or something. You know, and, and you can have these in front. We have a, an intro class here that we talk about we introduce confessionalism. We talk about how you know the, the, there's formal confessions, and then there's these kind of informal things too, right? And sometimes, or oftentimes, the fights in churches where there's not a confession, the fights are over these kind of informal mm. opinions and often tertiary issues too. But there's no one, there's no one articulating what the the key doctrines of the faith are, right? Yep. You know, so yes. so what now, are all the main yeah, things? So what suddenly, main drums and worship becomes the most serious thing, mm-hmm. or something. Not that that's not an important issue, right? But but you know, you you kind of lose focus on the main things. And how do you even determine the main things? What do you, how do you determine what the main things are? And yeah. you go, well, we have this document that helps us out. And and in the point you made, Gray, about the depth of the confession too, I think early on when I was in that stage of new to this philosophy of reformed thought i thought well the confessions yeah they're there to kind of like check yourself and make sure you know whatever check you yourself. Know, yeah <laughs> check yourself before you go off the yeah. deep end but they're they're not deep they're not profound <laughs> and then that was the thing i was struck by when i finally had to go through them in seminary you know and is this the profundity of the statements the elegance and and the eloquence of the statements yeah. you know and how clearly they articulate Reform thought. Um, yeah, for me, the influence was the, the personal one was when I had to learn the shorter catechism and memorize it for seminary. And having kids at the time, mm. well, actually, so early on we had kids, but they were too young. But but we we had a friend who put it all to music, and it wasn't half bad. It wasn't that bad. Okay, it was it was, it was pretty good. He's uh, he's actually the head of worship, I think, at Hope College now. He's great, Bruce Benedict. Uh, you can still find it online. It's a great it's a great resource. It's the Shorter Catechism to music, and it just kind of stayed in the rotation of our like family playlists, right? And so our daughters learned it, right? And 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 even to this day now, you know, they'll come in and say things like, you know, well, what what. What about this? You know, one of them's in college now, and she'll come in like, "What do we think about this, though, Dad?" And she's in this philosophy class. It's called, you know, God, knowledge, and reality, or something like that. What do we think about this? I'm like, "Well, what does the what does the catechism say?" And she kind of stops for a minute, thinks back. She's like, "Oh yeah, this is this is really this is a really helpful, clarifying yeah. statement Wonderful. on this thing that we believe that that if I'm just coming up off the top of my head, kind of spontaneously." You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do nearly as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but as a scholar, because you asked the question, like, what's the role that it plays in, in classes as a biblical scholar? One of the things we really try to highlight here is that there is a kind of uh, uh, there's a constraint that, that the confession brings in terms of kind of showing us uh, you know, sort of the limitations of broad reform belief. But there's also this, you know, there, there's this anchor aspect to it, right? Mm-hmm. It, it roots you in what your belief is. So as a biblical scholar now, I can go out pretty freely mm-hmm. and explore the text, explore new ideas, you know, and new interpretive models of Scripture because I'm anchored, you know, I'm anchored to this thing. It's very helpful in, in guiding me and kind of saying, you know, don't don't lose don't lose the force for the trees, you know, because I'm I'm rooted in this confession. You know, over over the break we watched this documentary it came out a long time a while back 
documentary called Free Solo about mm-hmm. Alex Honold who cl- climbs mm-hmm. El Capitan mm-hmm. without ropes, right? Mm-hmm. He free solos it. And, okay, Alex Honold can, can do that, but, but everybody else is much more, um, much more circumspect when they're climbing without ropes, yeah. right? And, and I think about that in my biblical scholarship. When I'm doing my Old Testament Semitics thing, as a confessionalist, I feel very well roped in, mm. and it gives me freedom yeah. to, to really explore the text, right, and to interact and to sit with people who I disagree with. Yeah. Right and learn some things from them because I know I'm rooted to this confession. Right. So it's not a constraining thing; it's a freeing thing. Yeah, you're freer with the ropes than yeah. without them. Right, yeah. exactly. That sense of anchoring too. I'm reminded of something Kevin Van Hooser said about what makes Protestantism distinct is that um, if in Catholic theology we have papal succession, yeah. Protestant theology has doctrinal succession. Right. Right. So coming back to Chad's comment too about the lack of stability if you have a person-centered theology or a person-centered church. Imagine if you're at a church without a confessional statement, yeah. then the theology changes when the pastor changes, right? And the pastor just gets to pick someone that they like or something like that, right? So there's no continuity of doctrine yeah. unless yeah. you had a confessional statement. There's no guarantee of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... We, we just see that over and over again. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so you... Let me ask you this, to bring it back around. You talked about being a confessionalist as a kind of marriage, right? To have and to hold. So what does it mean as a minister? So I'm going to come around to a minister, not not a congregational member. Yeah. But for a minister to hold the confession. You're, you're an ordained elder. So I, I, th- I think it has to mean that you know what it says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hate to put it that way, but there are a lot of Presbyterian ministers who... Yeah. have only skimmed, haven't really read it. Yes. Uh, a, a subset of which are quick to criticize it. Uh, so so knowing knowing what's there, um, I think if you're really going to hold something, if you're going to hold the Westminster Confession of Faith, then you also have to think through um, whether its articulation of doctrine is a biblical one because the Westminster Confession of Faith itself holds us to that standard. Mm-hmm. So, so reading it, thinking through it, um, uh, I guess to put it negatively, not working around it. Yeah. Uh, if you find yourself thinking that this is a liability, mm-hmm. um, th- then it's, it's probably time to, to go back through a time of reading and studying. And after that, if one were still to think that, it'd probably be best to kind of move on. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who holds it, I think, I think it needs needs to understand, and and then needs to needs to be able to, to teach it, to explain it, yeah. Uh, yeah. as as a church leader. I mean, I I I think I think uh, in our in a previous church, we asked deacons to be able to affirm mm-hmm. the truth of the Westminster Standards. We asked elders to be able to defend it to, to the extent that they could find scriptural passages mm. yeah. that would support the statements there. That's great. Uh, and then we would want our ministers to be able to teach through it, mm. to help persuade people that this is, this is good and true and 
uh, that this is this is life giving and life shaping doctrine. Mm-hmm. Good. So to use a late professor at Westminster Seminary, we have to be epistemologically self conscious with yes. regard to the Westminster standards. Yes, that's what it means to be confessional. Mm-hmm. Oh. You're smiling, Tommy. I I happen to know who you're quoting. There we go. I'm proud of myself. So okay. As a New Testament scholar, I know who you're, <laughs> who you're referring to. Tell us, when can we expect uh, the John Lightfoot journals? What, what can we expect from them, and when can we expect them? Ah, nicely put. So uh, you'll, you'll uh, upon opening its crisp pages, <laughs> you will find a brief introduction to Lightfoot and how he relates to the Westminster Assembly mm-hmm. uh, and a discussion of kind of what his journal adds to the minutes. Yeah. I mean, why buy this if you've got that? There are answers to that. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I, I, I do have a little bit of nerding where I talk about trying to piece together the journals, try to understand, you know, why I ended up finding it and so on. Uh, and then as you enter, you'll you'll find his uh, very personal take. I mean, he's, he's attempting to be objective, but he inserts himself all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's proud of his good arguments. He hides his bad ones. Um, and uh, he gives us he gives us kind of overviews of what was discussed each day not trying to capture every word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so-and-so said this. He's happy to paraphrase occasionally quotes and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and it's it's basically five or 600 pages, wow. well-indexed, of Westminster Assembly debates, topics, texts, wow. um, personalities. Mm. Is he um, giving his take on these? And, you know, like, he's uh, giving his take, but I mean, he'll discuss, you know, how rainy it is and, you know, how people... Uh can't get there on time today because, you know, the rain's so heavy. Uh, and, you know, there's the irony that on the day that it's raining really heavily, they discuss the Apostles' Creed's, Apostle, the Apostles' Creed's, wow, I'm really struggling with this one, the Apostles' Creed's statement, you know, yeah. I did have it right, yeah, 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 uh, about Christ descending into hell <laughs> uh, in the midst of this deluge of water. Um, yeah, so, so so he he you could see his grumpy comments when he's mm-hmm. irritated with people, his conspiracy theories, his very persistent anti-papism, anti-papalism. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a good read. And all throughout, I have uh, paragraphs uh, summarizing what each day is about, and then I try and identify people, um, texts that are referred to. Um, so there's two series of footnotes plus marginal notes. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, that's great. I like it. Oh, and a nice portrait of John Lightfoot that's in St. Catherine's College. On the cover? Yeah. Excellent. There we go. And when do you think it's going to be out? Oh, I think, I think this month. Okay. So soon. All right, everybody. Go out yeah. and pick it up. Yeah. I remember one time you were talking about the minutes and somebody because there's this there's this hope that you know suddenly you're going to have like all the insight but behind the space of six days mm-hmm. conversation where they where they say exactly what they meant, mm-hmm. and you commented on the fact that there actually there are very few moments where it was like, uh, you know, a, a, a Rosetta Stone or something where yeah, everything was unpacked, but more often than not you got the list of like what they ate for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> that day. You got it, that real it, in precise detail. Yeah, it, it it rarely delivers what you want. But the texts remain very difficult texts. They're, they're Lightfoot less so than the minutes, okay. but mm. they, they require persistence yeah. in order to, to explain them. I mean, in order to understand them and interpret them. 
it's not the kind of stuff you're going to go through go go to for sermon preparation for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. What a treat! What a treat for our students this week. And if you're interested in knowing more about the Westminster Assembly at large, but particularly the Confession, I, I would we both recommend. Um, the, both because uh, one of you won't? But both because we both talked about it. Oh. I should say all of us, <laughs> all three would recommend um, Confessing the Faith intro and, and, and commentary on the Westminster Assembly. Just truly an excellent book, a real contribution. Translated yeah. by into Spanish by our own Translated into yeah. Spanish right. masterfully, right. I am told. I will recommend the Spanish version. How about that? <laughs> so I can get in on the recommendations. <laughs> by Timo Sazo. Timo Sazo. Or, at RTS. Um, yep. And, and uh, former DC. producer of this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Chad, for being with us this week and tonight for this conversation. Thank you all. Look forward to being with all of you next week. Until then, take care. As the kids say. The we don't kids. even know what that means in the yeah, LPC, but I'll try and figure it out. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I, I used it inappropriately. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. My daughters have been saying, oh, that's so aesthetic. And I'm like, that's a non-statement. That doesn't mean anything to say something's aesthetic. Like, good aesthetic? <laughs> what does that mean? Modern, classical? <laughs> like, what's, what? Yeah. You can't just say they're But, like, it, but they're using it as if they know what it means. Oh, I just this love too? it. I love this movie. It's so aesthetic. Oh, this is, you know, this is going to end up in yeah. like Webster's. They're going to have to change add an the entry, yeah, because of the way the kids these days are using the word. And I take I've it it means it, may, it means a a kind of a palpable vibe. Stop yeah, vibe. I'm go. trying not to use yeah. another okay. modern an, another word to the, <laughs> the definition. I know, yes, like it's such a building. Though. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. That's why. Well, I tried to say that like it's so mathematic. I was trying to explain to them why it doesn't make sense. And they were like, no. But pretty soon, they're going to be right and we're going to be wrong. Once it gets added. People were talking about Top Gun. They were like, this is such a movie. It's finally a movie that feels like a movie. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) That's what Harry Styles said in his interview about. (laughs) Oh, really? Don't worry, darling, too. It's like, you know, it's it's finally, I'm in this movie. I'm just, it's like a movie people go to. It's a a movie. Well, that's how I was going to talk about the confession. Okay, good. Such a confession. Such a confession. Like such a document. So much more than creed. It's like it's just so confessional. Such a confessional. Finally, just keep doing that. We can confess. It is. That's so true. Just keep going off each other. All right. All right. Well, here's my cold open. No, no. That here's my. That's the cold open. Here's my. Here's my open.